1: Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
2: Radio Esteros, episode 12, two hops of a hole.
3: Hello listeners, hope you're all doing well today, and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Yoke Boy in England.
2: And I'm Lady Guinevere in Boston, and thanks for joining us today.
3: So, today we have an episode for you all about Jamie and Cersei Lannister, two intriguing characters, both individually and within their relationship, that might or might not belong together. And so we'll start with a brief overview and get a grounding of their early function in the plot, their relationship with each other, and we promise to use the word twin at least once.
2: I don't see how we can avoid it. So, after establishing the relationship between the two, then we'll look at Jaime individually, his relationship with knighthood, and his redemption arc.
3: After that, we'll consider Cersei on her own, paying close attention to her association with power and corruption. Then we'll take a close look at the Valenqua prophecy and its effect in story as well as presenting what we think might be at the heart of this puzzle.
2: And from there we'll consider the parallels between the defining moments for these two, Jamie's loss of his hand and Cersei's walk of shame. And we'll also have readings set to music from both those scenes, so heads up if you find the walk of shame particularly sensitive.
3: And we're going to wrap it all up with some speculation on where these two might be headed. Cersei, Jamie, and Brienne begin to form a complex triangle, so what we're going to do is cover Brienne in the next episode. So there's a lot of the Jamie and Brienne story that will spill over there.
2: Right, so we'll hold back on the Jaime-Brienne somewhat today. These three characters have complicated intertwining themes and arcs, and they really need to be studied together for a full understanding, we think. And with us covering two of them today, this episode will run a little longer than our usual hour and a half.
3: Yes, so if it's too long, have a break in the middle But we really hope that you stay with us for this bumper two-hour episode And of course, we'll also have the usual music from the fandom, a pseudo-advert and so on To break up the talking So, let's get started with Jamie and Cersei Lannister
2: Jamie and I are more than brother and sister. We are one person in two bodies. We shared a womb together. He came into this world holding my foot, our old master said. When he's in me, I feel whole.
3: Okay, so this is the first time that we've covered a duo on our podcast. So we're going to start with a kind of overview of Jamie and Cersei's relationship and their initial impact on the plot. Then we'll start to look at them individually a bit later.
2: Yeah, it's a good way to get a full picture, we think. So, we initially hear of the Lannisters in the first Eddard chapter. We immediately learn that Ned doesn't seem to like them much. It says, The Lannisters of Casterly Rock had come late to Robert's cause when victory was all but certain, and he had never forgiven them.
3: And so, right away, suspicion is cast upon this family, soon to arrive at Winterfell. With the Starks already established as unspoken good guys, a close-knit, honourable, quite affectionate family, Ned's wariness of, quote, an infestation of Lannisters is passed on to the reader.
2: Right, and as we know, these books grow in depth and complexity – But at this stage, so early on in George's saga, it's really important that he draws the reader in.
3: Yeah, he needs to create early interest and intrigue to get the reader committed and turning pages. So we see George use a very simple, standard trope to engage us. The perceived good family and the bad family.
2: And the notion of the Lannisters as antagonists is both reinforced and challenged as we progress, but... Early on, it was important for the author to frame House Lannister as these super-rich bad guys swimming in pots of gold, juxtaposed with the Starks as the protagonists.
3: Yeah, and that's very standard writing fare. And okay, so our first glimpse of Jaime Lannister comes early in A Game of Thrones when he arrives at Winterfell in Robert's party. Ned recognises him as the group arrives, but it's through Jon Snow's eyes that we get a description and here it is. Sir Jamie Lannister was twin to Queen Cersei, tall and golden, with flashing green eyes and a smile that cut like a knife. He wore crimson silk, high black boots and a black satin cloak. On the breast of his tunic, the lion of his house was embroidered in gold thread, roaring its defiance. They call him the Lion of Lannister to his face and whispered, Kingslayer behind his back. John found it hard to look away from him. This is what a king should look like, he thought to himself, as the man passed.
2: So the visual of the defiant lion on his breast turns out to be extremely apt for Jamie, as we'll see. His pride doesn't allow him to justify the act that earned him the nickname Kingslayer. And his defiance in the face of judgment is made plain later in A Storm of Swords when he tells the story of Ares' death and Ned Stark finding him seated on the Iron Throne to Brienne. He ends with, by what right does the wolf judge the lion? So here we can see clearly the inner conflict that's only been hinted at and which really defines his character.
3: Yeah, and we also get glimpses of Cersei's defiance throughout A Game of Thrones. Perhaps most notably when she's hit by Robert and vows to wear it like a badge of honor, and a first physical description of Cersei also comes from the observant John, obviously very similar to Jamie's, and we get an interesting assessment from John on the Golden Queen.
2: Yeah, it says, even at fourteen, John could see through her smile. So again, we're being set up to see the Lannisters as antagonists to the Starks. Also, through Jon's descriptions, the stage is set for George, leading us to believe that these two are similar, that they're soulmates. And as we soon learn, their relationship runs deeper than first thought.
3: Yes, their relationship does run a little bit deeper. And their depiction as two inseparable souls is encapsulated later on with Cersei's shameless confession to Ned, in the godswood at King's Landing. And we'll have a reading of that scene shortly. But two halves of a whole is the gist of that conversation.
2: Yes, it is. But first, Cersei and Jamie are revealed to be lovers to us through that infamous brand point of view where he's pushed from the window. But the romantic relationship between the twins stretches back a long way.
3: Yeah, and here's a quote. Even as children, they would creep into each other's beds and sleep with their arms entwined, even in the womb. Long before his sister's flowering or the advent of his own manhood, they had seen mares and stallions in the fields and dogs and bitches in the kennels and played at doing the same. Once their mother's maid had caught them at it. He did not recall just what they had been doing, but whatever it was had horrified Lady Joanna. (laughs)
2: <laughs> so, this relationship grew.
3: Yes, that escalated <laughs> yeah, quickly. <laughs> Very quickly.
2: <laughs> so, here their mother, Joanna, separates the pair by a long distance and actually keeps the story from their father, Tywin. This underlines two things the theme of Jamie and Cersei trying to be together in the face of separation, and the theme of them keeping their secret, both of which are necessary to their relationship and central to their arcs.
3: Yeah, so Jamie eventually left Castle Rock to squire for four years, remembering that Jamie could, quote, never bear to be long apart from his twin.
2: And when he returns to Cersei at age 15, she's more passionate than ever, and their sexual relationship actually ups pace. She tells him about Tywin's plan to betroth him to Lysa Tully, and that she wants him to join the Kingsguard instead, to be near her.
3: And he's a bit reluctant at first, but she uses their physical relationship to win him over and convince him It says, every time he went to sleep, she woke him again By morning, Casterly Rock seemed a small price to pay to be near her always
2: So, signs that Jamie would do almost anything to be close to his sister like The things he'll do for love
3: Yes, so Jamie joins the Kingsguard in order to be close to Cersei. However, this ploy backfires when Cersei is sent back to Casterly Rock. The two halves of a whole seem to find it very difficult to get what they want, each other. And the power of their bond and yearning is obviously very, very strong.
2: Yes, it seems to be, and so the theme of Jamie and Cersei being separated is one that grows in complexity further into the books, and we'll explore how that changes them today. Another theme we mentioned is their secrecy. Their incestuous union is not only a taboo, it would probably be considered high treason, as it not only has the capability to shame the Lannister name, but compromises the leadership structure of the entire seven kingdoms.
3: Right. We learn that not only did he slay the last king... But Jamie is now cuckolding King Robert Baratheon. He's sleeping with the Queen. And the three hares to the Iron Throne are illegitimate bastard children born of Twincest.
2: Ha! Beat that.
3: Yes, that takes some beating, doesn't it?
2: Right. I think Robert must have been deep in his cups for a long time not to notice this happening. As usual. As usual. But anyways, it is the first open-and-shut mystery in the books. And we start to see how George uses descriptions, in this case the golden hair of those three children, to give clues about hidden identities and lineages.
3: Yes, it's all in those descriptions. And the three golden-haired children... Joffrey the Despicable, Micella the Dignified, and Tom and the Sweet, all of whom Cersei, at least, cares greatly for, I'm not so sure about Jamie, are the embodiment of the dangerous secret Jamie and Cersei try so hard to keep.
2: However, like a lot of real-life secret affairs, the need for physical intimacy leads them to take risks. And unfortunately for Brandon Stark, a young, innocent boy with ambitions of being a chivalrous knight, the power of Jaime's and Cersei's secret manifests in a terrible way.
3: Yeah, and we'll look closely at this scene from Bran's POV. I think it would be better to present it there. But there's some interesting things going on in the scene with our brief glimpse of Cersei and Jaime here.
2: Right. Let's look at the climactic line, the moment when Jamie decides to kill Bran rather than risk their secret being told. It says, the man looked over at the woman. The things I do for love, he said with loathing. He gave Bran a shove.
3: Yes. So there's a juxtaposition of love and loathing in that quote. Jamie is being portrayed here as the more subservient one in this relationship. He's the one who will make sacrifices, like joining the Kingsguard, for example. And here, he's the one to cripple a child. The love, the passion and the inherent deceit this forbidden fruit of Twincest brings comes at a costly price. And here, Jamie might be loathing both himself for his actions and Cersei for having this effect on him.
2: Yeah, and it's made clear later in Jamie's point of view that Cersei would have rather Bran lived. And this is a woman who goes on to be involved in all manner of horrific crimes. But here Jamie pushes Bran because he assumes that's what she wanted.
3: Yeah, and we get some insight into Jamie's feelings about that moment uh, later on in the books. However, at this point... We don't know his point of view and George withholds certain redeeming insights about his character for the time being. He's now established as a classic loathsome villain with his sister too and this is really reinforced throughout A Game of Thrones. Their child, Joffrey, is repugnant right from the offset And so House Lannister fills this early role of the villainous family.
2: Right, and the actions of the Lannisters often have terrible consequences for the oh-so-likable Stark family. And in some ways causes the fracturing or divorce that George puts us through with the Starks and the breakdown of their family unit.
3: Yes, the breakdown of the Starks was very painful for us. And it's no surprise that Ned thinks of Jamie as being responsible for the death of Jory, the captain of his household guard, who's shown on numerous occasions to really care for the Stark children.
2: And I could also point out that Arya also holds Jamie personally responsible for Jory's death.
3: Yeah, we love Jory, don't we?
2: Yes, we do. It was very Poor sad. Jory. Well, Cersei and Joffrey are also doing their bit by actively contributing to Ned's downfall, uh, where the head of the Stark family rolled. And this is all after poor and, again, innocent Lady Sansa dark wolf is put to rest at the behest of smug queen.
3: Yes, Cersei uh, so did seem to be getting some satisfaction out of uh, the demise of Lady, which was a terribly sad scene. And moving on to their father, as we get to know Tywin from his introduction in uh, Game of Thrones and then further through the books, as head of House Lannister, we begin to understand Jaime and Cersei a bit better, I think. Their father is one of the hardest and most brutal figures in these books, cold and often bullying to his children. And that's perhaps something that increased upon the death of his wife, Lady Joanna.
2: And Tywin's children get an easy ride compared with how he deals with his enemies. And we're actually going to do an episode on Tywin, so we won't talk about him too much today. But with his obsession with Lannister pride, Tywin's impact on Jaime and Cersei, and also his presence as another prominent mean Lannister, should not be underestimated.
3: Yes, so again with Tywin, the reinforcement of this idea that Lannister's uh, the kind of evil family. Um, But we do see a lot of Tyrion, who seems immediately likable early on, funny, empathetic and decent, in spite of his physical deformity, which others continually judge him for. Yet he's not really presented as the beating heart of House Lannister, at least initially. And he's more of an outsider right from the start. It's the Roaring Lions, Jamie and Cersei, along with Joffrey and Tywin, who give the Lannisters their house identity early on in the books.
2: Right. Tyrion has this to say about his family in Game of Thrones... My brother is undoubtedly arrogant, my father is the soul of avarice, and my sweet sister Cersei lusts for power with every waking breath. And once this perception of the villains is set, the way is paved for George to play with this notion in various interesting ways later in the books.
3: Right, so Jamie and Cersei, villains, at least initially... And they all face separation and change and begin to define themselves as individuals rather than codependents as the books progress. Both of their arcs are fascinating and you really have to understand them in tandem, which is why we really had to cover both of them in one episode today.
2: Yeah, we really did. So, Jamie and Cersei, two halves of a whole... In our research for this episode, we made an interesting catch about this idea.
3: Yes, this is how hard we study to make an episode. In Storm of Swords, Jamie thinks, if I were a woman, I'd be Cersei.
2: And in Feast, we get this from Cersei. If I were a man, I would be Jamie.
3: Yes, just one of those small but satisfying catches that you get when you look over the books. Okay, so it's worth mentioning that two people can be halves of a whole, yet not be perfect mirrors of each other.
2: Yeah, and although Tyrion actually thinks of Cersei as a reflection of Jaime, if you consider yin and yang, a whole can be made up of two opposite or complementary forces.
3: Right, so whether Jaime and Cersei are quite as alike as they think they are is something we'll look at today.
2: And as villains, early in the story at least, Jaime and Cersei are as vital to the plot as Ned Stark. They're both wonderfully crafted characters whose relationship opens up many intriguing dynamics and themes as George begins to weave complexity, greyness, and backstory through their individual and combined arcs.
3: Yeah, their relationship is definitely more complex than you first think. And on the subject of Cersei and Ned Stark... Here's that rather unapologetic confession from the lioness of House Lannister from a Game of Thrones. Ned touched her cheek gently. Has he done this before?
2: Once or twice.
3: She shied away from his hand.
2: Never on the face before. Jamie would have killed him even if it meant his own life.
3: Cersei looked at him defiantly.
2: My brother is worth a hundred of your friend.
3: Your brother? Or your lover? Both. She did not flinch from the truth.
2: Since we were children together. And why not? The Targaryens wed brother to sister for three hundred years to keep the bloodlines pure. And Jamie and I are more than brother and sister. We are one person in two bodies. We shared a womb together. He came into this world holding my foot, our old maester said. When he is in me, I feel whole.
3: The ghost of a smile flitted over her lips. My son, Bran. To her credit, Cersei did not look away.
2: He saw us. You love your children, do you not?
3: Robert had asked him the very same question the morning of the melee. He gave her the same answer. With all my heart.
2: No less do I love mine.
3: Ned thought, if it came to that, the life of some child I did not know, against Rob and Sansa and Arya and Bran and Rickon, what would I do? Even more so, what would Catelyn do, if it were Jon's life, against the children of her body? He did not know. He prayed he never would. All three, they're he said. It was not a question.
2: Thank the gods. And that was Cersei proudly confessing her sins to Ned Stark. Notice her defiance there. We'll see how her defiance is linked with her confessions again later on.
3: And of course, later on in that scene, she gives Ned a quick lesson on playing the Game of Thrones, as well as mentioning the moment Ned caught Jamie sitting on the Iron Throne after slaying his own king. With that in mind, it's time to look at Jamie's relationship with honour, and his redemption arc.
2: So, Jamie is identified early in Jon Snow's point of view as the Kingslayer. And from Bran's point of view, we learn Sir Jamie Lannister looked more like the knights in the stories, and he was of the King's Guard too. But Rob said he had killed the old mad king and shouldn't count anymore.
3: And as we mentioned, Jamie is characterized by defiance in the face of judgments like this as we see in his meeting with Catelyn when he's disempowered and in captivity at Riverrun, he isn't bothered about defending his honour by explaining his point of view, even in the face of accusations of trying to kill a child. In fact, he might really believe, quite rightfully, that he has shit for honour.
2: At the same time, the small amount of trust that Catelyn places in him for the return of her daughters when she sets him free and his journey through the Riverlands with Brienne have the effect of reminding him what honour can be of his early ideals and, as we'll see, may even inspire a faint hope of redemption.
3: So it's important to note here that Jaime realised full well that Cat's trust was more in Tyrion than in himself, as he thinks... A strange woman to trust a girl's to a man with shit for honour, though she was trusting him as little as she dared. She is putting her hope in Tyrion, not in me.
2: And of course, Cat has little enough reason to trust either of the Lannister brothers. And to this point in the story, the picture we have of Jamie is one of a man who is at once... Restless and quick to anger, as the Blackfish told Rob, and who, in the words of Ned Stark, swore a vow to protect his king's life with his own, and then opened that king's throat with a sword.
3: And also don't forget Sir Barristan, in Bran's estimation, the greatest living knight. And Barristan calls Jamie the false knight who profaned his blade with the blood of the king he had sworn to defend combined with the ambush of Ned's party in King's Landing and Ned's bitter memory of Jamie Lannister's smile and Jory dead in his arms. By the end of A Clash of Kings, we ourselves have little reason to find any redeeming qualities in the man and can be forgiven for agreeing with Kat when she thinks, there is nothing here but arrogance and pride and the empty courage of a madman. I am wasting my breath with this one. If there was ever a spark of honour in him, it is long dead.
2: But there are a couple of small hints that there might be more to his character than being a soiled knight who's willing to kill children to keep his incestuous relationship with his sister a secret.
3: Yeah, first from Tyrion, who thinks there was very little that Jaime took seriously. Tyrion knew that about his brother and forgave it. During all the terrible long years of his childhood, only Jamie had ever shown him the smallest measure of affection or respect. And for that, Tyrion was willing to forgive him most anything.
2: So his little brother
3: looks up to him and loves him. And then there's the
2: story that he tells Catelyn in her final point of view in A Clash of Kings about the deaths of Rickard and Brandon Stark. This is one of the first hints that we get that there may have been extenuating circumstances in the death of Aerys Targaryen. While Jaime is quick to deny that vengeance for the Starks had anything to do with his murder of the king, George has sown the seeds of doubt in our minds. Yes,
3: the seeds of doubt which come to grow. And in that scene with Cat, when she accuses him of forsaking every vow you ever swore, We get this interesting rejoinder from Jamie. So many vows, they make you swear and swear. Defend the king, obey the king, keep his secrets, do his bidding, your life for his. But obey your father, love your sister, protect the innocent, defend the weak, respect the gods, obey the laws. It's too much. No matter what you do, you're forsaking one vow or the other.
2: Hmm, so the inner conflict we mentioned earlier is spelled out here. And in spite of her disdain for this man who tried to take her child's life and her clear understanding of the consequences of her freeing him, Cat decides to send him to Tyrion in exchange for her daughters.
3: So if you think about it, Cat must have trusted Jaime just a little bit. As we learn in his first... POV chapter in *A Storm of Swords, this decision involved a lot of vowing. In spite of his admitted conflicts with vows, Cat has decided to put her faith in Jamie's vows made at swordpoint. Swear that you will never again take up arms against Stark nor Tully. Swear that you will compel your brother to honour his pledge to return my daughters safe and unharmed. Swear on your honor as a knight, on your honor as a Lannister, on your honor as a sworn brother of the King's Guard. Square it by your sister's life, and your father's, and your sons, by the old gods and the new. And I'll send you back to your sister. Refuse, and I will have your blood.
2: And as we'll see, he really ends up taking these vows seriously. So, as he's travelling the Riverlands with Brienne, who despises him for his crimes, we learn a few things about Jamie. When she asks, Why did you take the oath? Why don the white cloak if you meant to betray all it stood for? His glib answer about his youth, which was meant as a shield to his true reasons, fails to satisfy her.
3: Mm. In his internal monologue, though, and as we talked about earlier... He recalls the scheme by his sister which led to his investiture into the King's Guard, Tywin's resignation as Hand and Cersei's return to Castle Rock. Jamie, as we alluded to, was taken in by that same villain that snared Robb Stark, a teenage boy's libido.
2: <laughs> All right. <laughs> and one more thing we learned during that exchange with Brienne is that he's fiercely proud of his knighthood, and how he earned it. He tells her, I earned my knighthood. Nothing was given to me. I won attorney melee at thirteen, when I was yet a squire. At fifteen I rode with Sir Arthur Dane against the Kingswood Brotherhood, and he knighted me on the battlefield. It was that white cloak that soiled me, not the other way around.
3: Yes, yeah, so he's really proud of his knighthood there, but also he's quite angry in that scene. And we later learn that Jamie quickly realized why he'd been chosen for the king's guard. And this kind of contrasts with his pride for his knighthood. The journey through the riverlands provokes many memories of the year of the false spring, and he thinks Ares had chosen him to spite his father, to rob Lord Tywin of his heir. Even now, all these years later the thought was still bitter.
2: So, Jamie was resentful of his position right from the start, and as he tells Brienne, Ares liked to keep me close. I was my father's son, so he did not trust me. So it seems that not only was he judged untrustworthy, but that he was denied the opportunity to be a true knight, and restricted mainly to being a glorified bodyguard for the royal family.
3: Yeah, definitely reason to be resentful there for a young man who had dreamed of the glories of knighthood. And of course, by the time of his journey with Brienne, he has a somewhat jaded view of knights. When they come across an oak tree full of dead women, the idealistic Brienne says, "No true knight would condone such wanton butchery."
2: Yeah, Jamie's reply: "True knights see worse every time they ride to war, wench, and do worse." Yes, it's. Actually, highly reminiscent of Sander Clegane's comment to the Brotherhood Without Banners. Might be you are knights, after all. You lie like knights, maybe you murder like knights.
3: Right, and that's an interesting parallel if you consider that the only two people named as, quote, false knights in the series are Jaime Lannister and Sandor's brother, Gregor. The implication being that these men have so badly broken their vows that they are beyond the redemption that even true knights may seek.
2: And the two characters most often seen in contrast to Jamie and Gregor are Brienne and Sander, neither of whom are knights, but both of whom show some of the qualities a true knight is expected to have. And in contrast to Sir Gregor, Jamie embarks on a redemption arc early in A Storm of Swords.
3: Yeah, the first hint that we get is actually just before the two are taken by the brave companions. When he thinks he had decided that he would return Sansa, and the younger girl as well, if she could be found, it was not like to win him back his lost honour. But the notion of keeping faith when they all expected betrayal amused him more than he could say.
2: Right, and then the arc accelerates with the loss of his hand, something we'll be examining in depth shortly. And of course, Sapphire is where he cleverly helps Brienne avoid rape. And the scene in the bear pit really demarcates his journey from false knight to redeemed soul.
3: And while some readers might never forgive Jamie for what he did to Bran, at least now he's headed in the right direction here. But it's probably the scene in the Harrenhal bathhouse where he opens up to Brienne about the real reason he killed Ares Targaryen that makes the reader sit up and take notice. This man might not be a vicious and self-interested killer. In this instance, at least, he just might be an unsung hero of this story.
2: However, as we mentioned in the opening segment, his inner rage at being judged falsely is profound and by the time he reaches King's Landing with Brienne, we see that it hasn't fully abated.
3: Yes, true. When Loras demands that she be held accountable for the death of Renly Baratheon and threatens her with his naked blade, Jamie orders her to be held in a tower room for her own safety. But Brienne's big blue eyes were full of hurt. As she was led away, and he thinks to himself... Why must they misunderstand every bloody thing he did? This really underlines his continued frustration with this theme which has plagued him since Ares chose him for the King's Guard.
2: So, when he's ultimately reunited with his family, it's made very clear that his journey in the Riverlands has changed him in a fundamental way. He still has the bitterness that comes from being continually misjudged, but we get little hints like this thought he has when reflecting about Joffrey's death. Jamie was sick of lies. And then Cersei's remark to him soon after You're changed.
3: Yeah, and then he quarrels with Tywin over the notion of duty when he hears of this scheme to marry Cersei to Oberyn Martel and Jamie to Marjorie Tyrell.
2: Yep, Tywin wanted Jaime to forsake the Kingsguard, which he had stuck with for all these years in spite of his disillusion and dishonor. And when he realized the reasons Ares chose him, he recalled, he would have ripped the cloak off then and there if he could have, but it was too late. He had said the words whilst half the realm looked on, and a king's guard served for life. So it seems that in spite of his reputation, we've been shown that the Kingsguard is something that he takes rather seriously.
3: And when Tywin tells Jamie what's expected of him, in that purely Tywin esque way that brooks no opposition, Jamie refuses. Here's the passage. No! Jamie had heard all that he could stand, more than he could stand. He was sick of it, sick of lords and lies, sick of his father, his sister, sick of the whole bloody business. No, 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 no. How many times must I say no before you'll hear it? I am a knight of the King's Guard, the Lord Commander of the King's Guard, and that's all I mean to be.
2: And this ends with Tywin, who does not like the word no, telling him, You are not my son. You say you are the Lord Commander of the King's Guard, and only that. Very well, sir.
3: Go do your duty. Ah, Tywin, he doesn't like it when he doesn't get what he wants. (laughs) And Jaime, for seemingly the first time in his adult life, has turned his back on his duty to house Lannister in favour of a path which must seem to him to be more honourable. This continues when he later refuses to have sex with Cersei in the White Tower and ultimately ends up freeing his brother Tyrion from the Black Cells.
2: And of course, his inner monologue shows his increasing disillusionment with Cersei, which begins with his refusal to bed her in the White Tower, and is later fed by Tyrion's Lancel and Osmond Kettleblack and probably Moonboy, for all I know, line. <laughs> <laughs>
3: so...
2: The fracturing of Jamie and Cersei's fabled union is critical to his redemption arc and culminates at Riverrun when he burns the letter she sends him from her imprisonment and turns his back on her in favour of his commitment to resolve the Riverlands situation peacefully.
3: And we see in his travels in the Riverlands that he is not only resolved to bring matters there to a conclusion as peacefully as possible, but that he is determined to keep his vow to Cat, to never again take up arms against Stark nor Tully.
2: But before we arrive at the final scenes that illustrate his possible transformation from Kingslayer to a man of honour, let's return to King's Landing and two key scenes there that really highlight his redemptive arc.
3: Well, first, of course, is his review of the White Book of the King's Guard. He thinks his deeds recorded on the pages there are rather scant and mingy and finds himself recalling the lost days of his youth, before dishonour had changed him.
2: Yes, when he thinks of his dead Kingsguard brothers, he wonders, and me, that boy I was, when did he die, I wonder? When I donned the white cloak? When I opened Ares's throat? That boy had wanted to be Sir Arthur Dane, but someplace along the way he had become the Smiling Knight instead.
3: Yeah, the Smiling Knight, the notorious outlaw. So then his musing over the white book culminates when he has Brienne summoned to him and sends her off on a quest to make good our stupid vows to your precious dead Lady Catelyn. And he gives her the sword Oathkeeper and tells her that she'll be defending Ned Stark's daughter with Ned Stark's own steel.
2: Mm, And Jamie also tells Brienne, I've made kings and unmade them. Sansa Stark is my last chance for honor. And then, in spite of a moment of misunderstanding, which really irks Jamie, Brienne promises to, quote, find the girl and keep her safe for her lady mother's sake and for yours. And this is an oath we know she'll take very seriously and that we'll be looking at in our next episode when we cover Brienne. And these two will be looked at in a lot more detail there.
3: Yes, so more Brienne and Jamie next time. And Jamie's narrative with the White Book comes to a close when he records the truth of his movements during the War of the Five Kings. And viewing the blank page that remains, the very embodiment of a tabula rasa, thinks he could write whatever he chose henceforth, whatever he chose.
2: So it seems like in this act... Jamie has chosen the path of honour, setting in motion a hoped-for rescue that could not only injure his own house, but if he believes the accusations of his sister, allow his son's murderess to go free.
3: Yeah, that's true. And it's really made plain here that Jamie has developed a keen appreciation for Brienne of Tarth, admiring not only her honour, her conviction and her abilities, but her big blue eyes as well. He has even made a point of using her proper name instead of wench as he called her so many times and has written about her in the white book, delivering him safely to King's Landing.
2: And then later he has a rather forceful exchange with Red Ronit Connington at Harrenhal, wherein he not only insists that Ronit use her proper name and title, but he knocks him flat with his golden hand.
3: Yes, it's a great scene. Red Ronit was really disrespectful about Brienne, uh, and that had a history, which we'll cover next episode. And Jamie really took issue with this. After slugging him in the face with the golden hand, he tells Ronit, "'You are speaking of a high-born lady, sir. "'Call her by her name. "'Call her Brienne.'"
2: Hmm. So this moment of defending Brienne marks a huge change in Jamie. He himself has belittled her and failed to use her proper name, but he seems like he's taken on board the similarities that has to the hated nickname and reputation he himself has had to bear. And as we mentioned, he's gained an appreciation and respect for Brienne as a person.
3: Yes, so as it turns out, Jamie and Brienne actually have a few things in common, which is probably why it comes as no surprise that when Brienne finds him encamped at Pennytree months later, and begs him to come with her because she's found the girl, but you will need to come alone, elsewise the hound will kill her. He apparently leaves alone with her, with absolutely no hesitation it seems.
2: Hmm, and this, in our view, is the true culmination of Jamie's redemption arc, though whether it results in tragedy or triumph remains to be seen.
3: They both seem to have made a major choice there. And so what's up next, Lady Gwyn?
2: Well, now it's time for a song from the fandom, after which we'll be taking a look at Cersei and her relationship with power and her perception of herself as a player in the Game of Thrones.
3: Okay, so here's the music. It's a rapper called Beefy with his Lannister song, Hear Me Roar all right gang let's uh let's take a knee um this
4: counts as a literary rap song because this is a spoiler alert for you as far as game of thrones and a song of ice and fire is concerned so if you haven't read the books but you're watching the show that's dope but you need to also not listen to the song if you're not going to read the books sorry I'm not a blacksmith, I'm not your bread Baker Golden Lion Cub, they call me King Slayer. Just because I did what nobody else had the heart to do Mad King Ares kept on murdering his number two The day I won this tournament, I made a life decision No land, no title, join this coalition King's guard oh my god, it was so hard Schooling every rookie squire, sparring in the courtyard There was Hightower, Dane wouldn't sell me Join at 16, safe to say my dad was angry We go to war, fighting battles I didn't want to fight which is hard to say because victory's my birthright king stored a lot of wildfire said to let it burn in that moment thought that i should be the one to end his turn set the throne while an angry stark approached me even then i knew my father never liked me hear me roar why i shed tears when i go on tour and while my beauty slowly fades like the setting sun all my life i'll be known as the golden one hear me Tears when I go on tour, and while my beauty slowly fades like the setting sun. All my life I'll be known as the golden one. I married the obscene, do some things you don't like when you need to be the queen. I heard my prophecy, me and Malara. A queen and she died in some water Three perfect children born from my body All golden hair, each one is a hottie Like the father, but the father Glad to say it isn't Robert Brother's been a lover since the days When we were younger, mirror dog and there's trouble, I don't have a dick So they taught him how to fight him They taught me how to knit Didn't make sense, we were basically the same And Jamie, he has changed Cause he doesn't feel my pain Fight my father's battles and my baby takes the throne But they asked you freaking much Leave my little king alone Feels like all of my children have been stolen Killed and taken from me Even still, I know father doesn't love me Hear me roar, court full of traitors I can trust no more And now it seems I can't even count on Jeannie. I know for certain everybody's out to get me Hear me roar, court full of traitors I can trust no more And now it seems I can't even count on Jeannie. I know for certain everybody's out to get me And who are you, the proud lord said that I, so that I should bow so low Only a cad of a different cloak That's all the truth I know truth I a know. coat of gold or a coat of red See a lion still has claws I still got A lion long and sharp, my lord as, as, as long and sharp as you.
3: And that was an excellent rap song from an artist called Beefy. That was Hear Me Roar.
2: Yeah, great lyrics and music. Beefy summarises Jamie and Cersei really well. Uh, And we want to say that that was our radio edit of Beefy's song. The original also featured a Tyrion verse. So we'll link to Beefy on our website if you want to hear the full track. It's up on Bandcamp where you can stream or download it.
3: So special thanks to Beefy for permission to use that song on our show. Now we're going to take a look at Cersei's relationship with power. She famously tells Ned in Game, when you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die.
2: But Littlefinger reminds us in A Feast for Crows that every man's a piece to start with and every maid as well, even some who think they're players.
3: Yeah, and he goes on to talk about Cersei indicating that, in his opinion anyway, She has an inflated view of her own importance to the game. And while from the very beginning Cersei is portrayed to us as a power-hungry and manipulative player, we think that Baelish might just have the measure of her.
2: We also think that she's one of the characters who consistently gets things wrong, as we'll discuss, including the fact that she sees herself as a major or accomplished player.
3: She really does. It's obvious that she thinks of herself as a mini Tywin, or, as Jamie thinks, Tywin with teats. Her inner thoughts when she's brought word of her father's death show this quite well.
2: Yeah, she's walking to the Tower of the Hand and she thinks, "'The bright star of the West has fallen. "'Now there's a hole in the world where father stood, and holes want filling. "'It's clear that she thinks that she's the one to fill that hole,' From thinking of herself as the Lady of Casterly Rock to giving orders to a guardsman and thinking, the command came easily to her. My father had steel in his voice as well.
3: And it's obvious that in a way she idolised Tywin and sees herself as his rightful heir. And she does have some of his qualities. She's described as cold by Robert and full of pride by Littlefinger. And also there are those bastards of Robert's That she ordered to be murdered, reminiscent of the deaths of Rhaegar's children laid at Tywin's door.
2: Yeah, and she shows herself as willing to teach her children sharp lessons as Tywin ever was when she forces Tommen to whip his whipping boy Pate himself and threatens to have Pate's tongue torn out when Tommen sasses her.
3: That was pretty tough on poor Tommen. And as far as her own opinion on the matter goes, she tells Jaime... A pity Lord Tywin Lannister never had a son. I could have been the heir he wanted, but I lacked the cock.
2: Hmm, well that brings us to one of the stronger themes we see in Cersei, her penis envy.
3: (laughs) Well, there's absolutely no denying that one. It's actually spelled out numerous times. She thinks about Jaime. I should have had the sword, not him. And she rather famously says to Robert... By all rights, you ought to be in skirts and me in mail.
2: And Tyrion thinks how Cersei always resented being excluded from power on account of her sex. And of course, there's Tana Merriweather, about whom Cersei wonders what it would be like to use her as a man would use her.
3: So there's a lot going on with Tina and Cersei, much of it related to Cersei's rage over her feelings of sexual victimization by Robert. The famous Myrish swamp scene parallels almost exactly with even the same phrasing, Cersei's earlier recollection of her mistreatment in the marriage bed.
2: Well, that anger has its roots in the sense of powerlessness Cersei must feel as a woman. And it seems Tena has the measure of Cersei as well, at least on some level, since she later tells Cersei of a conjurer she knows with special powers, asking, would it amuse your grace to be a man for one night?
3: Right, and it seems like that would be Cersei's dream come true. And that's the question that provokes her thought that we mentioned in the overview. If I was a man, I'd be Jamie.
2: Yeah, well, I see this as a tragic statement on Cersei's relationship with femininity. She's in a position to be a strong woman, yet she doesn't seem to tap into her feminine strengths. She loves her children, yet we rarely see her in situations that emphasize her motherhood, as we do with Catelyn Stark, for example. And we see her being dismissive of other women because of their looks, manipulating other women to her own ends, and allowing the torment of Sansa Stark. In fact, her attempt to give Sansa womanly advice comes down to use sex to manipulate men, which, in my opinion, is really not a strong female message.
3: Yes, mm, yeah, Cersei is, in some ways, a strong woman. And whilst it's true that she's often a victim of patriarchal culture, it's also true that she too often mistreats women. Let's not forget the ladies that she hands over to Qyburn for his experiments, her maid Senel, whom she suspected of spying for the Tyrells, the female puppeteers who had the gall to perform a show where a haughty lion was devoured by a dragon... And then even Felice Stokeworth, who had dangerous knowledge of Cersei's inane plot to have Serbron killed. And Kyburn is a true horror character, doing disgusting, torturous experiments on people in his basement. The supply of females to him is despicable, and makes Cersei complicit in his vile inhumanity. While I can't imagine what those women went through, Cersei doesn't seem to care. It's an almost sociopathic lack of empathy that we see from Cersei.
2: Yeah, and given her lack of empathy overall, I think sociopath might be a good diagnosis. Anyway, we thought it would be interesting to see what her brothers, her close family, think of her. And so we found quotes from both.
3: Right, we did. So let's have a look at the Jamie quote first. His sister liked to think of herself as Lord Tywin with teats, but she was wrong. Their father had been as relentless and implacable as a glacier, where Cersei was all wildfire, especially when thwarted. She does not lack for wits, but she has no judgment and no patience.
2: Hmm, and from Tyrion we get Cersei is as gentle as King Magor, as selfless as Aegon the Unworthy, as wise as mad Ares. She never forgets a slight, real or imagined. She takes caution for cowardice and dissent for defiance. And she is greedy. Greedy for power, for honour, for love.
3: Yes, that's some of the opinions about Cersei from her family. And a couple of interesting points there to discuss. Her beloved Jamie thinks about Cersei's lack of judgement and patience. Two things that will really contribute to her ultimate downfall.
2: But Tyrion's words are even more interesting. He's obviously got a very low opinion of his sister. Remember on another occasion, he thinks that Cersei was not without a certain low cunning. But there's one incredibly perceptive observation there.
3: Tyrion notes Cersei's greed for love. It seems a little bit out of place there, since we've come to know Cersei as the adored daughter of a great lord, famed for her beauty, and absolutely vain and shallow in her perception of physical attractiveness.
2: Right, and it's not like she's ever presented as affectionate or cuddly, even with her children. So, greedy for love?
3: We think there's some pathos here. Remember Cersei lost her mother at a very young age and has never forgiven her brother Tyrion for it. Unlike Jamie, who in his recollections doesn't seem that bothered by the loss of Joanna, it might have been a defining event for Cersei, who afterwards grew up without a female role model.
2: And it's pretty obvious that in some ways she adored her father, but knowing Tywin, it seems unlikely he returned her adoration with anything approaching affection. And when she was grown, he married her off to the most advantageous party without a thought for her happiness.
3: Yeah, to King Robert Baratheon. And while that was the reality of her culture, for someone who obviously likes to have a sense of power, it must have been a bitter blow and a real sense of helplessness might have kicked in, especially as the reality of her dynamics with Robert became apparent.
2: And we see an echo of that in the scene where Tywin tells her she must remarry for the good of her house. She's absolutely furious, but Tyrion, whose point of view we see this through, notes that, in the end, she will do as father bid. She had proved that with Robert.
3: So it seems pretty much like Tywin has always treated Cersei like an asset. She might have even felt bullied to an extent. In the scene, if you read it through... It seems like bullying for sure.
2: Yes, it does. And we should also remember that in her view, Robert was a drunken brute who assaulted her in the marriage bed. She thinks, Robert Baratheon, the first of his name, may there never be a second. A dim, drunken brute of a man let him weep in hell. And she recalls, the only time he'd ever made her wet was on their wedding night.
3: Yeah, and there's definite sadness there remembering that she told Ned that that was the night Robert called her Lyanna.
2: So really some room for empathy for Cersei there. On one hand, she became queen, but the actual relationship side of the marriage doesn't sound like much fun, with mentions of Robert's longing for a dead woman, his drunkenness, and also these mentions of him lashing out on occasion.
3: Not that Cersei was an entirely innocent party there. She did hit Robert herself, smashing him in the face with a horn of ale, cuckolding him with her own brother, passing off her bastard children born of incest as his own, and manipulated and schemed behind his back and ultimately plotted his death. But perhaps their marriage was much more grey than it seems upon first impression.
2: Yeah, typical George to give us a villainess and then start to give her some humanity.
3: Right, George rarely gives us villains that are 100% evil. But of course, the reader can't forget Cersei is also responsible for some pretty heinous acts. As we said, those women that she gave to Kyburn, and also the deaths of the direwolf lady and Ned Stark's entire household after his arrest. She also gave Jane Poole to Littlefinger, and we know how that one turned out. And much of Sansa's emotional torment during her captivity in King's Landing, we think was down to Cersei.
2: Right. We can lay the physical abuse of Sansa at Joffrey's door, but there's no denying there was an emotional element as well that Cersei actively participated in. So, as Feast progresses, she seems not only increasingly power-hungry, as her powers threatened after Tywin's death, but also increasingly paranoid, falling into memories of Maggie the Frog and her fears about the prophecy, as we'll be discussing shortly.
3: She really seemed to go off the rails when her father dies, and many of her fears manifest themselves in her paranoia over Tyrion, but Marjorie Tyrell increasingly becomes a target of her paranoia as well. And as we'll see in the next segment, this directly results in her ultimate fall from power.
2: So, Feast for Crows not only outlines Cersei's downward spiral, but it has some pretty amazing examples of her stunning ability to get everything wrong.
3: Yes, as Jamie indicated, her judgement is pretty poor overall and we find some of these examples to be quite funny
2: yeah we definitely think there's some humor in cersei's misjudgment sometimes Uh, we already mentioned that early in feast when cersei's been informed of her father's death she's a very interesting train of thought that speaks to her desire to be seen as a female tywin But as she hurries to her father's chamber and wonders how this could have happened, how could Tywin be murdered inside the Tower of the Hand, she comes up with a scenario that's absolutely ludicrous.
3: Yes, she thinks this might be the work of Stannis Baratheon through some cat's paw. It could well be the prelude to another attack upon the city. And then she goes on to think, Let him come. I will smash him, just as Father did, and this time he will die.
2: (laughs) Okay, so Cersei smashing Stannis Baratheon is just so unrealistic as to be comical.
3: It's almost Um, as bad as when Joff said he'd slay Rob in single combat.
2: Exactly. (laughs) Well, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, I
3: guess. Yeah.
2: Well, her skills with assessing situations and people doesn't seem to improve when she names young Orane Waters to the post of Grand Admiral, overseeing the Royal Navy, despite the fact that he was a sell-sale for Stannis not long before.
3: Yes, sounds like a brilliant move already, doesn't it? This seems like a decision made at least in part due to the fact that the first time she had seen him For half a heartbeat, she had almost thought Rhaegar Targaryen had returned from the ashes. (laughs) Waters has the silvery gold hair of Cersei's old idol and might know something about boats, but is basically a nobody with not much experience, whom her brother Jaime cautions her against.
2: Yeah, it turns out to be pretty good advice because as soon as Cersei is arrested by the faith... He sails off with her new fleet of dromans.
3: Bye bye. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Goodbye, Auraine. <laughs> Godspeed.
3: <laughs> Send me a postcard. <laughs> yeah, Cersei's vanity often leads her to judge people by appearance. Usually it's their ugliness that she notices, but here it's Auraine's good looks that help delude her into giving away a fleet. An interesting commentary on the nature of beauty, we think. And Godspeed to Raid (laughs) Waters, who Cersei was convinced deeply desired. Oh, Cersei. Oh, Cersei. She was
2: warned. <laughs> yes. And not just by Jamie. <laughs> so even her aunt Jennifer, who's in the Riverlands, has seen her folly. She tells Jamie Cersei's put some bastard on the council and a kettle in the king's guard. She has the faith arming and the bravosi calling in loans all over Westeros, none of which would be happening if she'd had the simple sense to make your uncle the king's hand.
3: And in the meantime, Littlefinger in the Veil is absolutely delighted by her mistakes, telling Elaine, You would not believe half of what is happening in King's Landing, sweetling. Cersei stumbles from one idiocy to the next, helped along by a council of the deaf, the dim and the blind, I always anticipated that she would beggar the realm and destroy herself, (laughs) but I never expected she would do it quite so fast.
2: (laughs) Well, for once, I think I trust Littlefinger here. Yes,
3: I think sometimes (laughs) he speaks the truth.
2: So far from consolidating her power... And establishing herself as a player to be reckoned with, as we saw was her intent when she learned of her father's death, she's become an object of mockery, a symbol of folly, and the very embodiment of a paranoid wreck as she allows her fears about Maggie's prophecy to send her reeling from one ill-considered scheme to the next.
3: And her scheming against Marjorie ultimately backfires spectacularly, who would have thought it, and leads to her own arrest and many serious accusations being laid at her door. This is something that we'll be discussing in depth later on. But now, a break from the talking for a minute, here's a message from today's sponsors, followed by an advert from another A Song of Ice and Fire podcast.
2: Today's episode of Radio Westeros is brought to you by Lannisport Legal Aid Foundation. When you or your family members are in legal trouble, call us. If you've hired an unsavory character who makes off with your employer's navy, we can mitigate your liability. If you've pushed your coworker's child from a window, committed regicide, deicide, incest, or high treason, we've got you covered. Our champion will work tirelessly for your exoneration, stopping at nothing to prove your innocence.
0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: These are non refundable and payable in gold in full upon retention of service.
3: Hey, sirs and ladies, I'm Skad. I'm Brooke. And I'm Matt. And we are the Davos Fingers.
4: The Davos Fingers podcast is a chapter-by-chapter analysis of the Song and Ice and
0: Fire series.
3: Our MO is to keep it fun yet insightful, but we do like to go deep. That's
0: what she said. While still maintaining a healthy dose of f- irreverence
2: yep just three friends discussing what we love best
0: oh
4: yeah and we're spoiler free except for a no holds barred anything goes discussion at the end of each cast called davos after dark
0: plus a plethora of references to other geeky things we love and jokes you last heard in middle school so whether you're a first-time reader or on your 15th reread come hang with davos fingers listen at Davosfingers.com or on itunes davos fingers it's like a book club with your friends but not
2: lame nailed it And there's a message from Lannisport Legal Aid with an advert by the Davos Fingers podcast. And we welcome ads from any A Song of Ice and Fire podcast here. Just some fun for us podcasters, so get in touch if you like. And thanks to Davos Fingers. Those guys are awesome.
3: Yeah. Hi, guys. That was great, so thanks.
2: Yes, it was. And check out the Davos Fingers podcast for an unspoiled reread. So where were we? Jamie and Cersei.
3: Yeah, continuing on with the theme of Cersei's corruption and her heading towards a fall from grace, let's have a look at the Valenqua. When Cersei instigates Marjorie's arrest, which, as we said, backfires, the root of her motives here lie in a conversation with Kyburn about forestalling a certain prophecy.
2: Yeah, so let's go back to early on in Feast. Cersei's arc takes a surprising turn as we enter a Feast for Crows, and we gain her point of view. We start to understand why she sometimes behaves the way she does, why her disdain for Tyrion is unquenchable and runs deeper than just blaming him for the death of her mother. And we see the sum of all her fears. We learn about the Valencar prophecy.
3: Yeah, the death of Joffrey, at the hands of Tyrion in Cersei's mind, seems to re-trigger an old obsession. Her first chapter in A Feast for Crows, and the first ever point of view from Cersei, opens with a dream. She's on the Iron Throne, and things seem to be going well, until the dwarf appears as if from nowhere, pointing at her and howling with laughter.
2: Yeah, Tyrion makes her dream a nightmare. Her nudity is mocked, which foreshadows the walk of shame. The Iron Throne begins to cut her, representing a loss of power. She awakens in panic. Remembering that Cersei doesn't yet know of Tyrion's escape, it's the imp who actually first disturbs her in the dream, setting the tone for her Valonqar story to be unfurled later in Feast.
3: So, in this dream, it turns out there's a culmination of Cersei's fears dating back to her childhood.
2: Yeah, and right away after this dream, we get a real sense of how deep Cersei's fears are. When she's told about her father and a crossbow, even though she still believes Tyrion's in the black cells, her initial reaction is to think paranoid thoughts about her brother. It says, I'm dreaming still, Cersei thought. I have not woken, nor has my nightmare ended. Tyrion will creep out from under the bed soon and begin to laugh at me.
3: Then, Cersei reassures herself, And we get our first mention of the Valonqvar. Knowing Tyrion is due to be executed later that day, it's clear that she considers the answer to some deep fears is the death of the imp. She thinks, a dream, that's all it was, a dream. I drank too much last night. These fears are only humours born of wine. I will be the one laughing come dusk. My children will be safe. Tommen's throne will be secure, and my twisted little Valonqar will be short ahead and rotting.
2: Yeah, the first time the word Valonqar is used, and still the reader's unsure exactly what's haunting Cersei.
3: Then she's told about Tyrion's escape by Ser Boros. Her previous assuredness disappears in the blink of an eye as she realises her brother is now at large. And we get this. He killed father as he killed mother, as he killed Joff. The dwarf would come for her as well, the queen knew, just as the old woman had promised her in the dimness of that tent. I laughed in her face, but she had powers. I saw my future in a drop of blood, my doom. Her legs were weak as water.
2: So, already in Cersei's first point of view, we know that in the past her doom has been predicted, and that Cersei ties that not only to herself, but the well-being of her family. And her internal monologue mentions Tyrion being in the walls, and people being Tyrion's creatures, so we can see how paranoid she's become, and how certain she is of this prophecy. This obviously all amounts to her believing Tyrion to be her nemesis.
3: And then, Cersei puts a price on Tyrion's head thinking the prophecy can be cancelled. After a massacre of dwarves the world over, and numerous brief thoughts about the Valonqvar, it's not until Cersei's eighth point of view chapter that we finally learn of the full story behind the prophecy, and it's in a dream.
2: Right, and we think it's probably significant that she has this dream after thinking about Felice Stokeworth down in the Black Cells, almost as if there's some sense of guilt connected to
4: it.
3: Well, the dream tells of Cersei and her friends Melara Heatherspoon and Jane Farman entering the tent of a sorceress called Maggie the Frog. They behave like brats and demand their fortunes told, waking the sleeping sorceress.
2: Jane runs away frightened, and Cersei both thinks of her as a coward and the one of them that did the right thing, knowing that she didn't hear her future and so went on to lead a decent life as the wife of Sir Gareth Clifton.
3: So, after ignoring three warnings of Be Gone from Maggie, Cersei and Malara insist on finding out their futures. And there's obviously a big danger in that, that the two girls are too proud and also too naive to consider. After giving a drop of blood, and remember that blood magic is the darkest of all sorceries, the girls are allowed to ask questions.
2: Cersei asks first. She asks... When will I wed the prince? Will I be queen? And will the king and I have children?
3: And we'll look at Maggie's answers shortly. But then Malara asks if she'll marry Jamie and finds out she will die soon and that her death is here tonight. Cersei ends up throwing a potion into Maggie's eyes and the girls run. Now the first thing to note here is Malara's demise. She fell down a well soon after, according to Cersei, and it's a good bet that Cersei helped her on her way. She looks at Cersei with, quote, accusing eyes in the Walk of Shame hallucination. Cersei was perhaps jealous of Malara's affections for Jaime, a dynamic hinted at in the Maggie sequence, and possibly the tie back to Cersei's guilty feelings about Felice that we mentioned. But Malara also told Cersei that if the prophecy wasn't talked about, it wouldn't come true. So maybe this was an attempt by Cersei to forestall the prophecy.
2: Right, and if Cersei did kill Malara, remembering that Maggie told her her death was in the tent there tonight, it really opens the theme of Cersei's actions directly bringing the prophecies into fruition. Now we'll take a look at Cersei's Valencar and discuss further this notion of the self fulfilling prophecy.
3: Okay, so first Cersei asks, When will I wed the prince? Maggie replies that she won't, but she will wed the king. So Cersei interprets or misinterprets this to mean she'll marry Rhaegar as soon as Ares dies. Notice here that the prophecy did actually come true, but not in the way Cersei had imagined. And this is why prophecy is a double-edged sword, capable of tricking characters and readers alike.
2: Mm, And with the second question, will I be queen? Cersei learns, queen you shall be until there comes another, younger and more beautiful, to cast you down and take all that you hold dear.
3: And the third answer, regarding her having three children and the king having 16 children, really confuses Cersei. But again, this actually came true. And when Maggie goes on to predict the death of her children, we get to the Valonqvar. "'Gold shall be their crowns, and gold their shrouds,' she said. "'And when your tears have drowned you,' The Valenqua shall wrap his hands about your pale white throat and choke the life from you. So,
2: the first thing to say about the Valenqua prophecy is that there seems to be a self fulfilling element. It's somewhat different from other prophecies in this sense. We've seen people try and make prophecies come true, but this is the only one where someone's trying to cancel a prophecy.
3: Right, and in doing so, probably only making it come true anyway. In an interview, George said this about prophecies.
2: The more you try to avoid them, the more you're making them true. And I make a little fun with that.
3: Yes, George is having fun. And perhaps he's talking about the Valenqua there. And Cersei might be the only person making a prophecy come true by trying to outright nullify it. As for the Valenqua, which we later learn is High Valyrian for little brother, it's a really interesting prophecy. And we'll talk about the candidates. Sir Saint naturally thinks it's Tyrion, her little demon monkey brother, who she now holds responsible for the death of her mother, father and son.
2: Yeah, and she doesn't even contemplate the tricksy nature of prophecy or think that she might be wrong, as she was about marrying the king, whom she assumed to be Rhaegar. So as readers, we're kind of having a laugh at Cersei's expense here, sensing that her obsession with killing Tyrion is more than likely leading her right into the grasp of the real Valonqar, whoever that may be.
3: Yeah, and one prime candidate for the Valonqar is Jaime. If it's not Tyrion, then Cersei's only got one other brother. And we learn quite subtly in game that Jaime is the younger twin. So he fits the criteria.
2: Yes, he is her little brother. Here's the quote. We shared a womb together. He came into this world holding my foot.
3: And holding the foot means that Cersei was birthed first, and Jamie was reaching for her. This is not a parallel exactly, but maybe inspired by a passage in the Bible from Genesis. Jacob and Esau were twins, and Jacob grasped at Esau's heel at birth, as if to try and pull him back into the womb. This reflected Jacob's desire to be born first and therefore inherit more. Whereas with Jamie and Cersei, we think it's simply more about Jamie not wanting Cersei to leave the womb.
2: Mm, yeah. Well, anyway, we're quite subtly told that Jamie's the younger twin, and there might be a problem with Jamie's hands, given that the Valonqar has both hands around Cersei's throat. But even so, Jamie as the Valonqar seems to be the most common conclusion across the fandom.
3: Okay, so what we're going to do here is talk about the various options that have been floated by fans, and then we'll focus on one scenario that we think is particularly interesting and try and add some of our own ideas to it.
2: So, as we said, Jamie's obviously a prime candidate, that much is certain, with Tyrion being marked as a red herring by most fans, although we think we should point out that Tyrion has actually expressed a desire to strangle his sister.
3: Yes, yeah, so perhaps we can't rule Tyrion out. In A Storm of Swords, when offering to sort out Lysa Arryn, he thinks there is Nothing he would enjoy more, except perhaps strangling Cersei.
2: (laughs) We think that's probably a red herring, though. But it's also worth considering George's fondness for making prophecies non-literal in their resolve. He said he likes to do this, so there are other little brothers, perhaps. First of all, there's a sellsword company called...
3: The Second Sons. And fans have noted that being a second son can also mean being a little brother.
2: Yeah, an interesting choice of name for that company, and one that opens up possibilities for the Valonqar.
3: Right, and notable members include Brown Ben Plum, Jorah Mormont, and da-da-da Tyrion.
2: Ha, yeah, the imp keeps putting himself into the frame.
3: (laughs) Yes, he does.
2: Anyway, there's also the idea that the brother in Little Brother could allude to a brotherhood. One example is the Kingsguard, which is a sworn brotherhood. We've seen it pointed out that as the newest member of the Kingsguard, Robert Strong might be considered a little brother.
3: Yeah, we think this one might be stretching the interpretation a bit too far. But there would be thematic sense with her seeing Robert Strong as a saviour. Anyway, we just wanted to make that point about brotherhoods.
2: Okay, and as we were trying to think outside the box, we realised the name Elder Brother was interesting. Does that mean that his disciples on the Quiet Isle, including Sander Clagane, could be viewed as younger brothers?
3: Yeah, that would be an interesting one. But again, we think this might be a stretch to the interpretation. It's nice to consider the various options, though. And to really blow open the field, readers have picked up on Maggie's wording. It's the Valencois. It's non specific and perhaps not confined to a relative of Cersei's, which would be your Valencois, not the Valencois.
2: So, this has left some readers wondering if it could be simply any little brother in the story. And we think that it's interesting, but we feel if George twists us on this one, it's kind of a cop-out to leave the field so open, and we expect the Valonqar to make some kind of sense as a puzzle and be relevant to Cersei. But probably Stannis is the strongest candidate, if it's any little brother. Remember, shortly before using the word Valonqar, Maggie had been talking about King Robert, and Stannis is his little brother.
3: Right, and just to round up, we wonder if these tears that Cersei's drowning on might be the tears of Lys. That would mean that she poisons herself before this Valencoir character finishes off the job.
2: Mm, anyway, let's look at the other pertinent parts of the prophecy. Queen you shall be until there comes another, younger and more beautiful, to cast you down and take all that you hold dear.
3: And again there's a host of options here. Looking at queens, there's obviously Marjorie who Cersei has her chips on, but then there's Danny, and also there's Ariane and Marcella as potential queens. And some people also like the idea of Sansa too that I've read.
2: Okay, so there are literal queens, or at least potential ones. But let's look again at the wording of that prophecy. Queen you shall be until there comes another Younger and more beautiful.
3: Yeah, and we think, as others do, that there's ambiguity in the wording here. It doesn't say another queen, it simply says another. So this could mean until there comes another, another person, not necessarily another queen.
2: Yeah, but Cersei tells Kyburn that Maggie had said, quote, Another queen would come
3: Right, so here we see that Cersei has changed the wording of the prophecy It's her interpretation she's laying out to Coyburn Not what Maggie actually said Prophecy will bite your cock off Even if you only wish that you had one And again, Cersei is a character who is frequently making mistakes Perhaps as she's doing here with Tyrion and this headhunt
2: yeah So this could open up the field once again. It doesn't have to be a queen. It's written to be interpreted either way. So candidates could thus include people like Brienne, who has a theme of inner beauty, for example. And we'd suggest that if this person isn't a queen, then it should be someone who's relevant to Cersei with a theme of beauty associated.
3: Right. So the Valencore prophecy, plenty of options there for you listeners to chew on.
2: Okay, so as regular listeners know by now, we like to add some fresh ideas when we talk about the mysteries of Ice and Fire. So we're going to look at one pairing and scenario and see if we can add some weight to it.
3: Yeah, so let's go with Cersei, the Valenqua, and the one more beautiful, all being closely linked. It really makes sense to us if it's all quite personal and interlinked in this way. So we'll look at Jamie as Signor Valencois and Brienne as the younger, more beautiful one.
2: And as we'll see when we cover Brienne in the next episode, these three form a really intriguing triangle with many layers and themes, and the groundwork's really been laid for increased tensions between them.
3: Yes, so with this Cersei-Jamie-Brienne triangle that we've talked about, we already have the storytelling logic. And this makes the combination of these characters the most meaningful within the story, we think. And remember that, in a way, Jaime already chose Brienne over his sister in A Dance with Dragons.
2: Exactly. it seems like George might have more in store for these three. So, Jamie is Cersei's little brother. We're told this very subtly. It's not dwelt upon by George or Cersei, and so that might be suspicious. He now has a golden hand, which might be problematic with the words wrap his hands, plural, about your pale white throat.
3: Mm, And so it would mean that the wrapping of hands was used loosely by Maggie. But we did find an interesting quote, Jamie's initial thoughts about his new hand. It says... When I reach King's Landing, I'll have a new hand forged, a golden hand, and one day I'll use it to rip out Vargo Hote's throat.
2: Yes, Jamie at least wants to do things like this with his hand. And I think we find the hand interesting counter evidence for Jamie, but by no means a fatal flaw. And we've seen people mention the Golden Hand's necklace that killed Shay, which, funnily enough, was last seen with Cersei, who insisted on taking it from Shay's dead body.
3: Yes, she did. It's interesting. The hand's necklace idea is a good one, we think. And we found a quote where Jamie actually thinks of strangling Sybil Westerling with a necklace. It says, Jamie would happily have strangled the woman with a seashell necklace.
2: And we noticed something else in our detective work. We're told separately, which is curious, that this seashell necklace is made of gold. So we have Jamie fantasising about strangling a woman with a golden necklace.
3: Hmm, It's very interesting, especially when you consider why George had Cersei salvage that golden hand's necklace from Shay, opening the possibility that it could reappear later in the story.
2: OK, and on to Brienne. Queen you shall be until there comes another Younger and more beautiful to cast you down And take all that you hold dear So we've explained that this doesn't have to be another queen
3: But she does have to be younger and more beautiful than Cersei. Younger, we can check with Brienne Now this is interesting Is Brienne more beautiful than Cersei?
2: Well, on the inside she surely is the Jamie Brienne arc concerns Jamie finding beauty in this physically unappealing woman. Her eyes are often marked as beautiful. And they're the windows to the soul. Remember, Cersei and Jamie entered the story as stunningly beautiful, and with their villainous antics in the Game of Thrones, there was surely a message from George about the nature of
3: beauty. And if the concept of inner beauty sounds cliche, here's our cliche response. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's subjective. Now, who is the beholder in the Valenquois prophecy?
2: Yes, who makes this prophecy? Maggie the Frog, a wise old crone who's largely defined by her ugly appearance. Called the Frog, she has greenish skin. She's warty, toothless, wrinkled. She has smelly breath, a bent back pendulous teats. She's a hag with crusty yellow eyes. But George has made Maggie as physically ugly as he could.
3: Yes, he has. And with her lovely golden curls, Cersei comes in and treats Maggie poorly right from the offset, threatening to have that old woman whipped for sleeping and so on.
2: Right, so, do you listeners think Maggie, Westeros' ugliest woman, who's probably had years of being insulted over her appearance, and who's also a wise crone, will consider Cersei more beautiful than Brienne? Because it's Maggie's definition of beauty that might count here. Remember that she wasn't always ugly, so she might know a thing or two about true beauty. Some coincidence that this freakish-looking frog woman is making this prophecy... We've never seen anyone consider this before, but yeah, we should contemplate what beauty means to Maggie the Frog.
3: Exactly as we said, however clichéd. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, so we should consider who that beholder is. In all prophecies, we believe it's a smart move to consider who made them. And here we have a repulsive woman, a grotesque, making a prophecy about beauty and trying to mess with the vain and narcissistic Cersei in doing so.
2: And as we said, Brienne's beauty is something that's gradually emphasised until the nickname Brienne the Beauty seems to become less and less ironic. Brienne seems to be ugly on the outside and beautiful on the inside, with Cersei being just the opposite.
3: Yeah, Cersei's brand of beauty might be considered both superficial and temporary.
2: Okay, so with Jamie and Brienne now together and Cersei discarded, this could all come together. We heard about the Valencar in A Feast for Crows, but it's actually alluded to earlier on. In Clash, Catelyn says this to guess who? Brienne. Every morning when I wake, I remember that Ned is gone. I have no skill with swords, but that does not mean that I do not dream of riding to King's Landing and wrapping my hands around Cersei Lannister's white throat and squeezing until her face turns black.
3: Right, very interesting. And the wording is so similar to the Valenqua prophecy. George surely did that on purpose, we think. Although it's Cat that says this... We're more interested in the fact that it was said to Brienne. We think there's a purpose for it, but we can't see Kat or Lady Stoneheart fitting.
2: No, we really can't. So we wondered if in their time with the Brotherhood Without Banners and with Lady Stoneheart around, Brienne might mention Kat's comment to Jamie, who strangely doesn't seem to know about the Valonqar prophecy. The idea just might stay in his subconsciousness or something like that And if there's a showdown with Cersei, this notion of strangulation might have been planted
3: Yeah, exactly, a seed might have been planted So Cat would have been the unknowing trigger to the Valenqua's part in the prophecy And the death of Cersei, which would be quite neat
2: Yes, it would Okay, so that's the Valencar, who Cersei immediately assumes is an ugly monster, being the handsome Jaime, and the another, younger and more beautiful, whom Cersei assumes is very pretty, being the unattractive Brienne. Cersei's shallow perception of beauty being turned inside out. And remember, Cersei says she'll make Jaime kill this younger and more beautiful one, so she might end up sealing her own fate if that backfires. This triangle of characters for the Valencar scenario has great potential in supplementing thematics and dynamics already present in their arcs, like beauty, self-fulfilling prophecy, and Cersei not seeing the wood for the trees, and that's why we like it.
3: But there's many options, though, that we've talked through for the Valonqar prophecy, and lots of significance to the story beyond the actual resolution of this prophecy.
2: Hmm, in terms of affecting a character, there's no prophecy quite like the Valonqar and poor Cersei. But now we're gonna have a reading of Jamie's mutilation at the hands of Zolo and the so-called brave companions from a Storm of Swords.
3: The Dornishman Timion and a foul smelling Ebenese pulled Jamie down from the saddle and shoved him roughly toward the cook fire. It would not have been hard for him to have grasped one of their sword hilts as they manhandled him, but there were too many, and he was still in fetters. He might cut down one or two, but in the end he would die for it. Jaime was not ready to die just yet, and certainly not for the likes of Brienne of Tarth. This is a sweet day, Vargo Holtz said. Around his neck hung a chain of linked coins, coins of every shape and size, cast and hammered. Coins from every land where he has fought, Jamie remembered. Greed was the key to this man. If he was turned once, he can be turned again. Lord Vargo, you were foolish to leave my father's service, but it is not too late to make amends. He will pay well for me, and you know it. Oh yes, said Vargo Hote. Half the golden Catholic rock I thought have, but firth I must send him a message. He said something in his slivery goatish tongue. urzwick shoved him in the back, and a jester in green and pink motley kicked his legs out from under him. When he hit the ground, one of the archers grabbed the chain between Jamie's wrists and used it to yank his arms out in front of him. The fat Dothraki put aside his knife. To achieve a huge carved rack, they mean to scare me. The fool hopped on Jamie's back, giggling, as the Dothraki swaggered towards him. The goat wants me to piss my breeches and beg his mercy, but he'll never have that pleasure. He was a Lannister of Castle Rock, Lord Commander of the King's Guard. No cell sword would make him scream. Sunlight ran silver along the edge of the Iraq as it came shivering down, almost too fast to see, and Jamie screamed.
2: When Jamie opened his eyes, he found, he found himself, himself staring, staring at the stump of his sore hand. <laughs> The The hand hand that made me Kingslayer. Kingslayer. The goat goat had robbed him him of his his glory and his shame, both at once. Leaving what? Who am I now?
3: So, the moment of Jamie's amputation there. And we pulled in some text from the bath scene at the end to set up this segment about identity crisis. But it's such a brutal and shocking moment, and of course such a game-changer for Jamie. Jamie.
2: Yeah, and we're going to be examining the parallels between that scene and one of the defining moments in Cersei's arc, The Walk of Shame, which we'll feature in our next reading.
3: And we'll also look closely at how these experiences affected Jaime and Cersei, who both appear to have been valued and defined by family and from those around them for superficial qualities from a young age.
2: Yeah, the flattery and attention they received was understandably taken on board as they developed senses of selves. Early on, Cersei was revered for her appearance and Jaime for his prowess as a swordsman. And both of these added to the notion of Lannister pride.
3: Right, and we see, for example, Kevin reflect on Cersei's unparalleled beauty in her youth. But these are qualities that are both temporary and external. So rather than being praised for internal strengths... They both grew up identifying themselves with these rather superficial qualities.
2: Perhaps it's no wonder, then, that these two children grew up to be rather shallow and vain adults. It seems like Jamie and Cersei base their self-concept on their sword hand and beauty, respectively. And as we'll see, when these supposed strengths are taken away, the core of their identity is shaken.
4: Hmm.
3: Perhaps if they'd been nurtured to be more than just the sword hand and the pretty face of House Lannister their looming identity crisis wouldn't have been so pervasive.
2: But in spite of the parallels that we'll note, we think there's a dramatically different result in each character's arc.
3: Yeah, we do. So up to the point where he loses his hand to the brave companions, Jamie has maintained his usual defiance and bravado, offering bribes to the swords just moments before the amputation.
2: Yeah, but that doesn't get him far. In fact, Urswick tells him, I've heard enough, Kingslayer. I would have to be a great fool indeed to believe the promises of an oathbreaker like you, which provokes a chill of fear in Jamie and some familiar resentment as well. Ares—it always turns on Ares.
3: Yes, Ares still haunting him. Well, we'll also learn later in the books about Vargo Hoat's devious plans to ensure his own safety by collecting Tywin's ransom for Jamie, and then turning Jamie over to the Karstarks in exchange for the hand of young Alice, which Lord Rickard had offered to whoever bought him Jamie Lannister.
2: So Jamie was bound for trouble no matter what he did there, it seems. And then when he loses the hand, he experiences more than a little bit of despair. His certainties are all swept away, and even at one point tells Brienne that he's dying.
3: Right, he does. Remember his views on, quote, cripples that he expressed when Bran Stark lay paralysed?
2: Oh yeah, he said to Tyrion, Even if the boy does live, he'll be a cripple, worse than a cripple, a grotesque. Give me a good, clean death.
3: So this doesn't exactly sit well with Tyrion. But it pretty much explains why Jamie would fall into absolute despair when he found himself to be a cripple.
2: As we said, Jamie's identity is very tied to his abilities with a sword. Just moments before they were captured by the brave companions, Jamie and Brienne were fighting. And it says, The swords kissed and sprang apart and kissed again. Jamie's blood was singing. This was what he was meant for. He never felt so alive as when he was fighting, with death balanced on every stroke.
3: So when he tells Brienne that he's giving up, she goads him with the reply, Are you so craven? He thinks of all the things men have called him, Oathbreaker, liar, murderer, cruel, treacherous, reckless, but never craven. It's almost like she's laid down the gauntlet of the identity crisis there. But still his reply to her is only, What else can I do but die?
2: When Brienne tells him to live, live to fight and take revenge, and he takes the challenge to heart, thinking not long after, live, live for Cersei, live for Tyrion, live for vengeance. A Lannister always pays his debts. When I reach King's Landing, I'll have a new hand forged, a golden hand, and one day I'll use it to rip out Vargo Hote's throat.
3: But this is really only the beginning for Jaime, since the loss of his right hand is so shattering to his identity. The loss of his sword hand leads him to think, without it he was nothing, the other was no good to him. Since the time he could walk, his left arm had been his shield arm, no more. It was his right hand that had made him a knight, his right arm that had made him a man.
2: Yeah, but even the poetic justice of the last isn't lost on him. As he tells Brienne, I've lost the hand I killed the king with, the hand that flung the Stark boy from that tower, the hand I'd slide between my sister's thighs to make her wet.
3: Right, that's a notorious hand. And the identity crisis is spelled right out for us in his POV when he thinks the goat had robbed him of his glory and his shame, both at once. Leaving what? Who am I now?
2: Well, that pretty much crystallizes Jaime's initial identity crisis. So let's take a look at what happens with Cersei in A Dance with Dragons.
3: Okay, so when Cersei is imprisoned by the Faith, she's accused of fornication, incest, regicide, deicide, and high treason. Quite a laundry list of crimes there, and it seems like she might have underestimated the trouble that she's in.
2: Right. After a lengthy imprisonment, she makes a confession of her sins to the High Septon, which involves admitting that she lay with her cousin Lancel and the three Kettleblack brothers. She firmly denies involvement in both Robert's and the previous High Septon's deaths and the charge of incest with her brother.
3: Yeah, and here she's trying to be smart by confessing to, as she thinks, too much rather than too little, whilst hotly denying the other, more serious charges. But, in essence, she actually opens herself up to the other charges by confessing her guilt of fornication with two individuals who've given testimony. The convert, Lancel Lannister, and the tortured, Osney Kettleblack.
2: Right. She ends up giving extra weight to Lancel's and Osney's testimonies by admitting that she had an intimate relationship with them. And these two men have knowledge of her actions that relate to the charges against her. She even knows that Osni has spoken against her.
3: Okay, so after her confession, Cersei is allowed a visit from her uncle Kevin. He tells her I have spoken with his high holiness. He will not release you until you've atoned for your sins.
2: And when Cersei protests that she has confessed, he corrects her Atoned, I said, before the city, a walk.
3: She replies that she would sooner die. And it's at this point that Kevin outlines the charges against her. His High Holiness is resolved that you be tried for regicide, deicide, incest, and high treason. And he tells her that she'll be tried by the faith, unless she insists on a trial by battle.
2: And when Kevin goes on to tell her of the situation in Dorne with Marcella and Eris Okart's death, Cersei sees a way out and sends her uncle to Kyburn to find Sir Eris' replacement.
3: Right, but the High Septon still refuses to let Cersei return to the Red Keep unless she performs this Walk of Atonement. And so she agrees, knowing that she must be released in order to control her only hope, this trial by battle.
2: So Cersei begins the Day of the Walk thinking... No harm will come to me today, only my pride will suffer. Even maintaining the hope that Jamie may yet come, Jamie, if you ever loved me.
3: Yeah, in one sense she really still depends on him, despite thinking earlier about rescue by Jamie. That road led nowhere though, Jamie's sword hand was gone, and so was he. Vanished with the woman, Brienne, somewhere in the Riverlands.
2: Well, so Cersei is shaved head to toe and brought to face the crowds, still half hoping for Jaime to come to her rescue, while the other half of her recalled the story of her grandfather, Lord Titus's mistress, a proud and vain woman who overreached herself and was sent to walk naked and weeping through the streets of Lannisport by Tywin after Titus's death.
3: Yeah, and there's some irony later on there, as the woman's behaviour closely mirrors what we'll see from Cersei in the end. But at this point, Cersei remembers the guardsman who said the woman, when naked, was just another whore. And Cersei's own thoughts are still full of pride. She's a Lannister to the core, thinking, I am a lioness. I will not cringe for them.
2: So it seems like Cersei is trying to present a brave front by appearing self-assured in the face of what are clearly her deep reservations emphasised by her memories of the fate of her grandfather's mistress and the day of the bread riot.
3: Yes, yeah, she recalls the day of the bread riots, the morning of the walk. It says, even so, she was afraid. On the day Marcella sailed for dawn, the day of the bread riots, gold cloaks had been posted all along the route of the procession, but the mob had broken through their lines to tear the old fat High Septon into pieces and rape Lollis Stoteworth half a hundred times. And if that pale, soft, stupid creature could incite the animals when fully clothed, how much more lust would a queen inspire?
2: Right, so the reader can sympathise with Cersei's defiant resolve to maintain some dignity in this frightening situation. But we could also wonder if she truly understands why the bread riots happened, the rage of a hungry and downtrodden people. Cersei's in a position to empathize with Lawless. Instead, she seems to be contrasting Lawless's unappealing physical appearance with her own beauty as she contemplates the threat of rape, indicating that she might not understand why the threat existed. And it certainly wasn't anything to do with Lawless's appearance or with lust, as Cersei seems to think in that passage.
3: And so, as she begins the walk, protected by a dozen warrior's sons, including her cousin Lancel, her internal monologue is a chronicle of her descent from defiance to despair, beginning with, I have sinned and must atone, must parade my shame before the eyes of every beggar in the city. They think that this will break my pride, that it will make an end to me, but they are wrong.
2: But the scorn and insults of the crowd really begin to weigh upon her. She's walking with her head held high, trying to remain a queen, when she puts her foot down in something slippery and loses her footing. Scepter Ionella tells her, your grace should watch where she sets her feet.
3: Yeah, and we think this is pretty good advice, because by this time, the readers know that Cersei just doesn't watch where she's going. Her decisions seem to always be leading her down the road to folly, Proving the truth of what Peter Baelish said about her in A Feast for Crows.
2: Yeah, we alluded to this earlier. Here's what he told Elaine. Cersei thinks herself sly, but in truth she's utterly predictable. Her strength rests on her beauty, birth, and riches. Only the first of those is truly her own, and it will soon desert her. I pity her then. She wants power, but has no notion what to do with it when she gets it.
3: Yeah, so Peter mentioning these superficial qualities that we talked about. And right there we see some real foreshadowing, not only just of this walk, but probably of what's to come in the future as well.
2: Right, so as the walk progresses, the insults people call out seem to get much more personal. With Cersei still thinking, words are wind, she begins to hear things like, my wife has sweeter teats than those, and from a young boy, That can't be the queen. She's as saggy as my mum. And by this point, she's hobbling along on bloody feet and begins to hallucinate faces in the crowd.
3: Yeah, it's getting more intense. And then it says, A bald man with bushy side whiskers frowned down from a window with her father's frown and for an instant looked so much like Lord Tywin that she stumbled. A young girl sat beneath a fountain drenched in spray and stared at her with Melara Heatherspoon's accusing eyes. She saw Ned Stark, and beside him little Sansa with her auburn hair and a shaggy grey dog that might have been her wolf. Every child squirming through the crowd became her brother Tyrion, jeering at her as he had jeered when Joffrey died. And there was Joff as well, her son, her firstborn, her beautiful bright boy with his golden curls and his sweet smile.
2: It seems like the dead or her past deeds, and perhaps her fears and regrets as well, are haunting her here. When she falls again, in spite of her best efforts to maintain her pride and detachment, she begins to think, I should not have done this. I was their queen, but now they've seen, they've seen, they've seen, I should never have let them see. Gowned and crowned, she was a queen. Naked, bloody, limping, she was only a woman, not so very different from their wives, more like their mothers than their pretty little maiden daughters. What have I done?
3: So there's something interesting going on here, which we think could reach far back into Cersei's childhood. We learn in The World of Ice and Fire that when the twins were six, Lady Joanna brought them to court to present them to King Aerys. And it turned out to be a rather unpleasant experience.
2: Yes, here's the passage. The king, very much in his cups, asked Joanna if giving suck to the twins had ruined your breasts which were so high and proud. The question greatly amused Lord Tywin's rivals, who were always pleased to see the hand slighted or made mock of. But Lady Joanna was humiliated. Tywin Lannister attempted to return his chain of office the next morning, but the king refused to accept his resignation.
3: So, at a young age, Cersei witnessed her own mother being humiliated in public by the king for the changes having children had brought upon her body.
2: And we know that Cersei is perhaps painfully aware of the changes her own three children have brought to her, since we see her think of Taina Merriweather. She is younger than I am. Her breasts have not begun to sag.
3: So these insults being hurled at her about being saggy and her sudden realisation about her mistake in letting them see might just be tapping into some really deep insecurity in her.
2: Yeah, it might be. But it's when she sees Maggie the Frog in the crowd and hears across the years her words Queen you shall be until there comes another younger and more beautiful, to cast you down and take all you hold most dear, that her terror takes over and she begins to run, ultimately arriving at the Red Keep, sobbing and scrambling on all fours.
3: Yeah, and here's where it gets interesting, because the narrative George uses to describe this final part of the walk corresponds very closely with the description of the forced walk of her grandfather's mistress,
2: in the case of Titus's mistress, they spoke of how the woman had wept, of her futile efforts to cover her breasts and her sex with her hands as she hobbled barefoot and naked through the streets.
3: And Cersei's final steps up Aegon's high hill, she is weeping and hobbling, and she quote, covered her nipples with one arm, slid her other hand down to hide her slit.
2: Hmm, those two descriptions are very similar. So, Circe finally broke at the end, becoming what she was certain she wouldn't at the beginning of the walk. a desperate weeping woman in front of the crowd, perhaps in her mind, losing her pride and power here and This is triggered by her memories of Maggie, the sum of all her fears, who instilled the fear of losing her beauty into Circe at a young age with a prophecy relating beauty to her demise.
3: so we see Circe's old memories of Maggie, Titus's mistress. And possibly the humiliation of her mother all culminating here when Cersei finally broke. So very deep-rooted insecurities coming out. It's interesting that she faced the danger from the crowd and the public humiliation and so on. But it was Maggie that finally triggered Cersei's breaking point.
2: Mm, and it's also worth noting that Cersei thinks of Tommen both before and after her ordeal. She gains strength at the thought of being reunited with her son, although we can't be sure if it's Tommen she craves, or the power he can offer her, or probably a little bit of both. Here's a quote. She had to reach Tommen, no matter what the costs. He loves me. He will not refuse his own mother. Joff was stubborn and unpredictable, but Tommen is a good little boy, a good little king, he will do as he is told.
3: Yeah, Tommen does do what he's told, unless we're talking about beetroots. And so Cersei ends up finding a new saviour entirely, a knight all in white. But in spite of her joy at finding that Kyburn has actually kept his word and that she has a new champion in the form of the monstrous Sir Robert Strong, we feel... This is really the moment when Littlefinger's prediction that Cersei's beauty will soon desert her comes true.
2: Yeah, and here we come to the really clear parallel between these two events, Jaime's amputation and Cersei's walk of shame. Throughout the early books, it's made clear to us that Jaime's identity rests upon his knighthood and swordsmanship. His internal crisis upon losing his hand makes that very clear.
3: Right, and Cersei has gained much of her power through her beauty as well as her family connections and riches as Littlefinger highlighted. But in the course of her walk of shame, we see Cersei come to the realisation that her family's deserted her. This is shown through Cersei's thoughts of her dead father and her absent brother and her uncle whom she feels has now betrayed her.
2: And, of course, right at the end, she realises that the power her beauty gave her over people has vanished in a moment. She's destroyed the illusion that she so carefully maintained of the beautiful, haughty, golden queen in a matter of minutes.
3: Yeah, what's been seen can't be unseen. So what we find fascinating when examining these two is the completely different way they each take their crisis on board. You might expect them to react similarly, given how they're so often described as being alike. But really, their reactions couldn't be any more different.
2: Take Jaime, for instance. We admittedly see a lot more development from him after his crisis, given that Cersei's walk of shame takes place near the end of A Dance with Dragons. But we think it's pretty clear that his amputation has played a big role in his redemption arc.
3: Yes, we do, the opportunity to redefine himself. And when he returns to King's Landing, Cersei asks him, what did they do to you? And when he replies, they cut off my hand, she says, no, it's more, you're changed.
2: Right, and so he has. He goes on to refuse his father and insist on remaining the Lord Commander of the King's Guard. Given the opportunity to redefine himself, he really takes to heart the influence Brienne has had upon him in their time together, making her, in a sense, the architect of his redemption.
3: Yeah, he's seen to turn his back on his family, except for his wrongly accused brother Tyrion, who he sets free. And he gives away the Valyrian steel sword his father gives him, and that's in the name of honouring a vow.
2: Yeah, the sword alone is huge, given what we know of the status these things convey upon the houses who own them, and the long years House Lannister has mourned the loss of Brightroar. This is not only Jaime refusing to further taint what was a Stark heirloom, but also indicates a refusal of Lannister identity, which ties in with his refusal to leave the Kingsguard at Tywin's command.
3: Ryan's sending Brienne off to find Sansa and keep her safe from his sister would have been inconceivable from him not too long ago. So we get to the point we mentioned earlier where we see Jamie with the white book, thinking he could write whatever he chose henceforth. This indicates that he has really become his own man with his own future.
2: So we see very little of Cersei after her walk. And what we do see is through the eyes of Kevin Lannister, but in spite of his continuing train of thought about Cersei being subdued and his assurance to Mace Tyrell that my niece will make no further mischief, we're not so sure.
3: No, we're not. She obviously has something up her sleeve with Sir Robert Strong and Kyburn, And we wonder about the contrast between Jamie's saviour being Brienne and Cersei's being this silent and mysterious giant, Robert Strong.
2: Right. Jamie chooses Brienne, who leads him to be a better person. And Cersei now has Robert Strong, an undead monster. The contrast here is interesting. Yes. In the absence of each other, Jamie's and Cersei's new saviors say a lot about where each sibling is now headed.
3: Yes, Brienne and Sir Robert Strong, two very different types of saviour figures. So Cersei makes two interesting statements to her uncle as they have their final meal together. One is actually a request to have Lady Tayna Merriweather come to attend her as a lady-in-waiting. Kevin obviously doesn't know of the scheming that those two had previously got up to, as he thinks it's a modest request, and he agrees.
2: And the other is an offhand comment about Osmond and Osford Kettleblack not standing by while their brother Osney dies. She's taken aback to hear that her uncle has arrested the two, which makes us wonder if she had put some hopes there.
3: Mm, maybe. And a couple of mentions of Jamie make it clear that she still hopes that he will return. And taken all together, we think this brief glimpse indicates that Cersei isn't done scheming just yet. She may have gone for an awful punishment and she may have been humiliated, but it doesn't appear to be in her personality to learn a valuable lesson from the experience. Instead, it seems like she might be continuing to put her trust in the same dubious characters that helped her get where she is at the end of A Dance of Dragons.
2: Mm, so, Jamie and Cersei both have something defining taken from them, but only Jamie seems to really undergo any permanent change due to the opportunity that the identity crisis presented. Of course, time may tell with Cersei, but it seems like her character is little affected, and that, in spite of her humiliation, her old arrogance was never far beneath the
3: surface. So Jamie and Cersei, two halves of a whole, at this point in their arc seem to be headed in very different directions, in more ways than one. And so, to lead us out, here's the reading that we promised earlier. It's the final part of Circe's Walk of Shame.
2: Circe began to climb. If anything, the jeers and shouts were cruder here. Her walk had not taken her through Flea Bottom, so its denizens had packed onto the lower slopes of Aegon's high hill to see the show. The faces leering out at her from behind the shields and spears of the poor fellows seemed twisted, monstrous, hideous. Pigs and naked children were everywhere underfoot, crippled beggars and cut purses swarmed like roaches through the press. She saw men whose teeth had been filed into points, hags with goiters as big as their heads, a whore with a huge snake draped about breasts and shoulders, a man whose cheeks and brow were covered with open sores that wept gray pus. They grinned and licked their lips and hooted at her as she went limping past, her breasts heaving with the effort of the climb. Some shouted obscene proposals, others insults. Words are wind, she thought. Words cannot hurt me. I am beautiful, the most beautiful woman in all Westeros. Jamie says so. Jamie would never lie to me. Even Robert? Robert never loved me, but he saw that I was beautiful. He wanted me. She did not feel beautiful, though. She felt old, used, filthy, ugly. There were stretch marks on her belly from the children she had borne, and her breasts were not as firm as they had been when she was younger. Without a gown to hold them up, they sagged against her chest. I should not have done this. I was their queen, but now they've seen. They've seen. They've seen. I should never have let them see. Gowned and crowned, she was a queen. Naked, bloody, limping, she was only a woman. Not so very different from their wives. More like their mothers than their pretty little maiden daughters. What have I done?
3: So, an awful scene there, the Walk of Shame.
2: Yeah, it was. And we think George tried hard to punish Cersei in a way that was thematically relevant. Nonetheless, it was a terrible thing for anyone to go through. No matter what you think about Cersei, or what we've said in her analysis today, nobody was finding satisfaction there.
3: Exactly. With all the various threats, from the angry mob to Cersei's internal fears, it was a tense and uncomfortable scene, and one that felt shocking for many readers.
2: And, as we said, it's Maggie that finally makes it too much for Cersei after enduring the walk with her trademark pride early on. Obviously, Maggie gives Cersei a taste of her own doom, but let's not forget, Cersei is now fearing for the lives of her remaining children, Tommen and Myrcella.
3: Yeah, Joffrey has already died in Cersei's arms, which, like we said with Catelyn and Rob, is one thing no mother should go through. And that was another terrible scene for Cersei, where we can truly empathise with her.
2: Yeah, although ultimately more sinning than sinned against, Cersei has definitely had more than her share of torment throughout her life. But we wonder how she'll fare when her children have those golden shrouds.
3: Mm, It's interesting to think about Cersei as a mother, and we're sorry that we couldn't cover that in more depth today. But she repeatedly says that she loves her children, And we believe that she does. Cersei claims that everything she does is for them. But she does seem to have a tendency to treat them, as Tywin did his children, as a means to power. Which is both understandable and unfortunate.
2: Yeah, Cersei's relationship with her children does often seem inextricably linked to the power they can offer her. But we also don't doubt that underneath that her love for them is deep and genuine despite her actions sometimes
3: right and so one other thing that we touched on was this idea for the Valenqua being jamie what we find very interesting there is the possible parallels between cersei and the mad king who had an unhealthy obsession with wildfire
2: yeah notably there's the scene where she burns the tower of the hand there are numerous quotes in the books that liken Cersei, especially her eyes, to wildfire and even draw parallels with Eris. It's Jaime's thoughts that we find the most compelling here. When recalling how his sister looked as she watched the tower burn, he thinks the sight had filled him with disquiet, reminding him of Eris Targaryen and the way of burning would arouse him.
3: So this puts us very much in mind of the Mad King and his plot to burn King's Landing, which led to his untimely demise at Jamie's hands. And we're repeatedly reminded that those caches of wildfire are still hidden around the city, with, again, several references to this as a possible future plot point.
2: Hmm, Chekhov's wildfire. And the parallels with Ares are even more interesting when you consider that Jamie slew Ares to prevent his wildfire plot succeeding. So with Jamie being a candidate for the Valencar, is this where we're headed?
3: Well, this would definitely be a fitting end to his redemption arc, we think. Once again, he could save King's Landing and this time become a Kinslayer. However, we also like the notion of a showdown at Casterly Rock, so there's some really interesting possibilities to consider.
2: And one other thing we should mention is that while we the readers see Jamie's redemption arc clearly, in story, only person who really sees it is Brienne.
3: Yeah, he's so misunderstood. So wherever Jamie's redemption arc goes, his own family will only think that he's gone mad, while to his enemies, he'll always be known for things like Jaime Lannister sends his regards, and his perhaps empty threat to hurl Edmure's child over the walls of Riverrun with a trebuchet.
2: Well, we'll be looking more at that next time in our Brienne episode, and also a bit more at the triangle formed between Cersei, Jamie, and Brienne, and where we see that going.
3: And after Brienne influences the change in Jamie, it's interesting to consider the true nature of Jamie and Cersei's love. Was the twin-cest ever really about love, Or was it just plain old narcissism? Were they sleeping with each other, or were they making love to themselves? These options are not mutually exclusive, but it's worth noting that Cersei seems less interested in Jaime after she notes the change in him.
2: Hmm, okay, so Cersei Lannister, the architect of her own downfall, Perhaps too stubborn and proud to ever change her ways. Jamie, despite a despicable side to his character, is shown to be capable of positive change. If we had to highlight the major difference between the twins, it's empathy, the ability to understand the feelings of others via an understanding of the self. Jamie seems to have this capacity, while Cersei does not. So it's little surprise that our two halves of a whole, these two golden villains from Game, are ultimately diverging.
3: But given their repeated thoughts about dying together, we do think that they'll come together again in the end. Remember, it might have been Jamie in Bran's coma dream with Robert Strong looming over him. So if Jamie and Cersei do die together, Perhaps it won't be quite as romantic as they had been intending.
2: Don't talk like this. You're scaring me, Jamie. Don't be stupid. One wrong word, and you'll cost us everything. What did they do to you?
3: They cut off my hand.
2: No, it's more. You're changed. And that's our look at Jamie and Cersei, two halves of a whole, or are they? Thanks so much for listening to this extended episode. Up next we'll look at Brienne of Tarth, where we'll also be continuing the discussion on Jamie from Brienne's point of view, and a bit more on Cersei as well. As usual, before we leave, we have to give credit where credit is due. So thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for creating Westeros and all its wonderful characters. And to Nine Inch Nails and Kevin McLeod for allowing us to use elements of their music. And Beefy for allowing us to play his song today. Full details of all music we use can be found on our MP3 tags and at our website. Visit RadioWesteros.com to see our site with readings, links to essays, and quick access to all our podcasts. You can also comment on our content there or connect with us
1: via Twitter, Facebook. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row?
2: google plus or tumblr thanks for joining us we'll see you next time bye for now